So these four Sundays that I have the great privilege to be with you, and I mean that sincerely, what does the future hold biblical prophecy in the last days? And it's going to be my purpose to take four events. Now, you can understand when you talk biblical prophecy, you're looking at this amount of things you could speak on. I mean, you could take it for a year easily and develop 52 different messages. So I've got four already. Uh, so it, it was difficult to try to narrow down because there's so much you'd like to say, but we've got the four weeks. And so today we're going to look at uh, this, this matter of the uh, next event on the prophetic scene. And as someone asked me Friday night, a couple of people said, well, what is that you're going to be speaking on Sunday morning at church? I said, it's a mystery. Okay, so that's what I'm speaking on. I'm speaking on it's a mystery. But hopefully that mystery will be revealed to you this morning. Next week, we're going to look at what I call the backbone of biblical prophecy. It involves so much uh, to it, we're going to have to take it, condense it down. But let me just ask you a question. Don't, don't want to embarrass anybody. Everyone's from different places on their spiritual journey. But if I just mention two words to you, do you understand what these two words are? The tribulation period. Tribulation period. What comes to your mind? What do you think of? Um, what's going to happen? Are you fearful of going in it and through it? What is the tribulation period? Do you believe it's seven years long? Why do you believe that? Where do you get your basis that the tribulation period is seven years long? So those are some of the things we want to look at next week. By the way, if today is a day of triumphancy, next week it's a time of tribulation. Okay? Also called by Jeremiah as Jacob's trouble. Then the third week, we're going to look at the coming Islamic invasion of Israel. Now, I need to put that word Islamic in quotation marks as I hear myself talking. What would appear if things are near the end times, then I would say what we're going to look at is the coming Islamic invasion of Israel. But since that day may not come for another thousand years, I should probably be careful with the word Islamic. But you'll get the point if you're with us two weeks from today. And then the last one, who hasn't heard the word Armageddon, right? Uh, the world, every time you think of something, end times or judgment or something, they think, oh, Armageddon is coming. So we want to talk about Armageddon, Jerusalem, and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the four areas where we're going to be going, Lord willing, uh, starting today. Now, many of you have read or seen a movie uh, entitled Left Behind. And it was Tim LaHaye, who now is with the Lord, that wrote those books and from which the movie came. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but over 80 million copies of Left Behind were sold. That's a lot of copies of a book. And so a lot of people became aware of what it means to be left behind. Those left behind are what we're going to be discussing next week. What we're discussing today is we don't want you to be left behind because you don't have to be left behind. Okay? So that's the, the, the area where, uh, where we're going. Now, when you hear this word, the rapture, and uh, that's kind of where you see a lot about that in, the, in that uh, series of books, we know that when the rapture occurs and Christ comes for his church in the air, that up to, if he were to come today, up to two billion people could disappear from this earth. That would mean over five billion people would be left behind. So most people who have heard this word rapture, probably most of them don't really understand it. 
Others may have heard about it, but they treat it like something that came out of the Twilight Zone or science fiction because they don't belong to the Lord. Often we see news uh, on the TV where there are warnings about a bad thing coming, the sweeping fires in California, the tsunamis in the Pacific Rim, and the tornadoes in the Great Plains. And people, when they see that possibility coming, they are usually warned in one manner or another. But the warning always has one word behind it if it's coming and it looks like it's going to sweep through that place. Evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. Get out of town, okay? This horrible, horrendous thing is coming upon where you live. Now, in a similar manner, the Bible warns us that an evacuation is going to take place. And it's as though the Holy Spirit of God is saying today that be ready to evacuate. Because after that evacuation, you don't want to be here. And there's going to be a time when the Lord removes his people from this earth and it will undergo disastrous effects of coming earthquakes, fire, pestilences, global chaos with massive and destructive wars like never before, as well as demonic activity on this earth that is going to be like it's never been seen before. It's not fantasy. It's not science fiction. It's truth. It's reality. It's absolute truth. The Lord is coming for his church. Now, in their user-friendly book on prophecy written a couple years ago, Bruce Bickle and Stan Yance illustrate the chaos and result of this event. Listen to what, or you can see it on the screen. Jumbo jets plummet to earth as they no longer have a pilot at the controls. Driverless buses, trains, subways, cars with cause unimaginable disaster. Classrooms will suddenly be without teachers. Doctors and nurses seem to abandon their patients in the middle of surgical beds. People run through the streets looking for missing family members who were there just moments ago. Panic grips every household, every city and country. Now that's just a little brief description of that terrible day of the Lord that we're going to see next Sunday. So today it's triumphant day. And as God's people, we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Yet let's try to understand what is involved in this next event in biblical prophecy, at least as I understand it. But it is indeed a mystery. Uh, mystery. Now I'm going to read, and it's going to be on the screen too, and if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you have a Bible and you follow along, uh, you might also finger back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 are the two passages that especially treat this subject matter of the rapture of the church. Now, notice in verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians from the ESV. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, the Apostle Paul here, and some of you know who have studied the book of Acts or Paul's missionary journeys, went to Thessalonica 
on his second missionary journey. The best we can fit together, he was about three weeks until a riot broke out and they persecuted Paul and they uh, chased, him, uh, chased him out of the city. But he had three Sabbath days uh, to teach them the word of God. And now, uh, since that time, questions have arisen in Thessalonica. And the believer's main question in what he's addressing right here is that, Paul, since you've been here, I've lost my mom. My child died. Um, and then I'm looking back and I'm thinking 25 years ago I had a grandparent and that, per that person was a Christian, but they died. Where, where are those people now? And will I ever see them again? What are they doing now? What will happen to those who missed the rapture that you're talking about? You taught us about the coming of the Lord for his church. Now I'm thinking, well, I've got loved ones who've died. Since they have died, will they miss now the rapture? Or how are they related to it? And how does that affect those of us who are yet alive? And so that's the question that he's uh, addressing here. And it's a mortal man looking beyond death to find assurance and peace and rest in his own heart. The good thing is Paul, by the revelation of God and the inspired writings that he penned that we're reading in Thessalonians, he penned these words that had given hope to believers for 2,000 years as he answers those questions. So let's begin where Paul begins. This I say to you by the word of the Lord. So it's a revelation of the scriptures. Now the people have always speculated about the future. The Greeks loved to philosophize about it. But they had no hope for the future. None of well, the Epicureans had none. The Stoics had none. There was no hope. There was no word from God to them. So Paul wants to make sure I'm not just another philosopher. What I'm about to say to you didn't originate with me. This I say to you by the word of the Lord. And we know inspiration is the act of the Holy Spirit whereby he guarantees that every word that was written down in the Holy Scriptures is safeguarded from error, every jot and tittle by the Holy Spirit of God. And so he says, here's the revelation God gave me. Now keep in mind that when the Thessalonians were meeting like you're meeting this morning, the only scriptures they had to study were the Old Testament. Now, the only New Testament they might have had access to by this time, might have, is the book of James. But other than that, that was probably the only book written at the time he writes that, because 1 Thessalonians is one of the first books uh, that were written in the New Testament. Now, when he comes to Corinthians and talks about the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, that was written another year or two later. And so the, the, the people are hearing this now uh, for the first time in the sense of the Holy Scripture. So Paul begins by saying in verse 13, notice, I don't want you to be uninformed. In the old uh, King James, remember, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who are asleep. What do you mean, Paul? And in verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the, the Lord. So now in the parallel passage of 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58, if you'd read that scripture, Paul introduced the subject of the rapture in verse 51 by saying, behold, I tell you a mystery. What am I preaching on today? It's a mystery. And now we get to uncover and see the mystery unveiled to us. But Paul says, behold, I teach you a mystery. Now, those of you who were part of Pastor Rob's study in Ephesians, remember when you got to Ephesians 3, he introduces the church. And here's what he says in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Ephesians when he's talking about the church. He says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about the mystery of the church, Ephesians 3, but then he talks about the mystery of the rapture of the church. Both are called mysteries. You say, what is a mystery? Now, when I think of mystery, I think of my favorite detective. I've got to confess. His name, Columbo. I mean, I love, I just love his trench coat, don't you? And uh, I love Columbo. 
And uh, in fact, last night, my wife and I watched Columbo. Now, we, we watch this over and over again. <laughs> and the thing neat about getting old is you forget how it ended 30 years ago. So you can watch it again, and it's all fresh to you again. And uh, I love it. It, it, it all, every every uh, segment begins with a crime. And Columbo enters the situation, right? And he's kind of uh, snooping around, and he sees an empty wine glass with lipstick on it. Then he sees a cigarette butt down in, and so he's looking for clues. Why? It's a, it's mysterious. And he wants to solve it. That's exactly what I don't want you to think of when you think of the word mystery. That's not what he's talking about. Now, if I would have had my smarts about me, and I would have illustrated this easy for you to understand, I'd have two slides up there. And the first slide that you would turn to and see is with nothing absolutely on it, just a blank screen. Got it? And I'd say to you, now, do you understand that revelation there? And you'd look up there, and you'd see a blank screen. You'd say, Harry, I don't know what in the world you're talking about. I'd say, you don't? You got any brains? You don't understand that? It's not rocket science. Anyone can understand it. You say, I don't understand it. Why? Because it hasn't been revealed. Then I click the screen or have them do that back there. And the next slide comes up and it says on the slide, one plus one equals two. That's the mystery. Now I say, do you understand the mystery? You say, Duh, yeah, I understand one plus one equals two. What was the problem? It was previously concealed right? And now it's what? Revealed. So what is a mystery? A mousterion is the Greek word that Paul uses. It's something previously concealed, now revealed. You got it? So on three class, what is a mystery? You're going to say it with me. One, two, three. Previously concealed, now revealed. So it's not difficult. It's not mysterious. It's something previously concealed that is now revealed. And so we look at this mystery then, and what we know is this. The mystery you will never find in the Old Testament. Don't come to me and tell me about this, that, and other, or something in typology with Noah or what, Enoch or Elijah, and say, you know, that's speaking of the church. No, it's not. Why? The church was a what? Mystery, meaning nothing there in the Old Testament about the church, which then takes you to the rapture, which is also called a mystery. You'll never find the rapture in the Old Testament. Do you have it? Now, you say, well, you're being pretty dogmatic about it. Yes, I am, because this, Paul says, is a word from the Lord. He used the word musterion, previously concealed but now it's revealed. And it's part of that greater scheme of things that we call the progress of revelation, where God continues to make more of his truth unknown uh, to his people, but that's another subject altogether. Now, where do we get the word rapture? Well, it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, where he says this, believers alive at this time when Christ comes for his church, they will be caught up together. Those two words caught up, in the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation of the Greek New Testament scriptures into Latin, they used the word raptorod. The church will be raptorod or caught up. So that's how we get the English word rapture. And it has to be catching up to meet the Lord in the air or raptured. So it has to do with the church being removed from this earth to be with the Lord. Now, to be certain, the Old Testament talked about the truths of resurrection, resurrection of the body, but not the rapture. Now, some people go to John chapter 5, and they see the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says, Behold, I'm going to verily, verily, I say unto you, and he talks about the resurrection. And he talks, some will be resurrected uh, unto life, and some will be uh, resurrected unto the damnation. Okay, And they say, see, there's two resurrections. No, there are two kinds of resurrection. There is a resurrection that is typified by life. There is another resurrection that is typified by damnation. Did you know in the resurrection unto life, 
There are seven different resurrections taught in the scriptures that fall under the classification of the resurrection to life with Jesus Christ himself being what? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 55, that's 15, 20, that he is the first fruits of the resurrected. Did you know there never was a resurrection unless it came after Jesus? You say, well, what about Lazarus? He wasn't resurrected. You said, that's heresy. No, it's not. He was resuscitated to be, die again, but he wasn't resurrected. The very word first fruits, Jesus, the first fruits of our resurrection, means two different things. It means, A, one, more is coming just like this one, first fruits. And number two, it's going to be the same kind of quality. So Jesus' resurrection sets the pace for the other resurrections coming. Now, that's another subject, but I do have a tendency to ramble at times. Sorry about that. But all I want you to understand is resurrection to life includes the rapture of the church, which is the church being uh, resurrected uh, unto life uh, at the coming of Christ for the church. Now, the second group, uh, let's go ahead and move to the return of the Savior here uh, and move uh, quickly. There are two groups that are mentioned in light of the rapture, and uh, we used to refer to them years ago as uh, the church triumphant and the church militant. Did you ever hear that? Now, especially some of you have more of a liturgical background. Uh, those are very common terms. Those of you who have a Roman Catholic background, those are very familiar, or should be very familiar terms to you. The church triumphant are, is simply the church that has already died. They're in heaven. They're with the Lord. So they are triumphant. The church militant are the church believers who are left on earth. Why? Because we're still in battle, right? We know what spiritual warfare is. Uh, we know what the battleground is. So you've got the church triumphant believers who have died in the Lord and are with the Lord. And you've got the church militant uh, believers like you and me today who are still uh, left behind here in the midst of spiritual, uh, spiritual warfare. So he's talking here, and, and go to the next point, those who are asleep or those who have fallen asleep, that would be the church triumphant. And the term asleep is used in the Bible to refer to natural sleep, just what you did last night. Hope you had a good one. You went to sleep. Or it can be used of a believer who has died in the Lord, and he is said to be uh, asleep. Now, let me say this. When the term is used for a, a person who has died, an unregenerate, unsaved person who dies is never once said to be asleep. It is a term reserved for believers. A believer who dies is said to be asleep. Never is it said of an unbeliever. But that begs a question, too. What about the person who has died, the Christian? What about him has died? And uh, that's when we get to Paul's progress of revelation, and we understand going even back to the words of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? At the resuscitation of Lazarus, on the resurrection of life, he that liveth and believeth in me, he shall, what? Never die. And he said, Mary Martha, do you believe this? The person who has trusted in you, he will never die. So there is a sense in which a believer never dies. And what is that sense? It's the sense of his soul or his spirit. You know, what I'm looking at this morning is just a bunch of shells, right? That's all. I mean, it's just a tent that you're in, and it's temporary. And guess what happens with your tent? <laughs> it starts wearing out the older you get, right? And that's what happens with our body. And so eventually the body dies. But at that moment, what happens to the soul? Well, we believe at that split second of the death of the body of a believer that the soul then goes to be with the Lord. So through the progress of Revelation, listen to what Paul unveils to us in Corinthians and Philippians. Yes, we are of good courage, and we are willing, 
where he says we would rather be a way that is absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So then he wrote Philippians from a prison in Rome, and he said, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. I am a hard press between the two. But my desire is to depart. That is to have the soul depart from the body. In fact, the word was used of a ship who was set loose in its moorings from being tied to the dock. And it was set loose. And that's how Paul pictures the soul of a believer. I am hard, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Notice the departing of the soul from the body is present with the Lord. I'm willing to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So the soul then, we can say, of a believer goes into the presence of Christ. The body then is committed to the ground, awaiting for what we're talking about here, the resurrection of the body. So the dead in Christ, in a sense, when the Thessalonians says, well, are they at disadvantage? Will they, they miss the rapture? Can they still be part of it? In a sense, the dead in Christ actually have an advantage, if you want to call it that, in that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay? The priority. Now, some people interpret that verse, the dead in Christ shall rise first, of meaning the Baptist. But... Let's go on from there, okay? So the dead in Christ, it's joke, loosen up, joke. Uh, so the dead in Christ actually have a privilege. Now, notice the second group of people. Uh, those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Now these verses, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, what he's saying is this. Here's what we know. Someday the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, and he will bring his people who have died with him. Stay with me. This is not the second coming of Christ. Okay? Get that out of your mind. This is the rapture. If you want to say and stretch it, it's part one of the second coming. Okay, we can kind of see where you're going. But the second coming is not until seven years later. And if you and we'll look at it maybe uh, in the fourth time. But the distinction between the rapture and revelation are quite a few. In the rapture, he comes in the clouds. But the second coming of Christ is when he literally descends upon earth and his feet touch uh, earth's ground at a specific place over in the Middle East in Israel at a mountain called the Mount of Olives. From whence he ascended to heaven, he shall return in so manner at his second coming, which this is not the second coming. This is the rapture. Now, the fact that Paul uses the pronoun we in verses 15 and 17, since we believe, etc., suggests that he expected to be alive at the coming of the Lord, at the rapture for his church. That's why theologians refer to this as the imminent return of the Lord Jesus, meaning it can happen at any second. And keep in mind, this is not the second coming seven years later. So there is the generation of believers who will be alive at the time of the rapture who will not walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but will be raptured, translated, changed in the split second and be raptured up to be with the Lord. We used to love to sing, it may be at morn when day is awakening. Remember that? Or midday or twilight or the darkness of midnight. We just don't know. Morning, afternoon, night, don't know. What day, don't know. But here's what we know. Oh, joy, oh, delight, should we go without dying? 
I don't look forward to the process of dying, though I know I'm a dying man. We're all dying. But I don't look forward to the process. I don't know what it holds for me. I am so soft, I don't like to suffer. (laughs) But it's just not my choice. It's not your choice. Oh, delight, should we go without dying? No sickness, no sadness, no dread, and no crying. Caught up through the clouds with our Lord into glory when Jesus receives his own. Oh, Lord Jesus, how long? How long till we hear the glad song? Christ returneth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the blessed hope. Death has never been the blessed hope. Bacon was right. Men feared death as children fear the dark. But this is the blessed hope. Christ returneth. Three things I want to say about this quickly. The coming is imminent. It's instantaneous. And it's in corruption. By imminent, as we said earlier, it means it could happen at any time. I need to add at this point, please get this down. There's so much screw up on this that it makes you sick. There are no signs that are given in the Bible that are meant to give you a what precedes the rapture. Are you with me? There's no signs in the Bible about what precedes the rapture of the church. We had a person come see us, my, my wife and I, a, a short time ago. And when Russia invaded uh, uh, Ukraine and a couple other things were going on, they came in, they were ready to sell their house. Honest to goodness, they wanted to put their house on the Because why? Jesus was coming back. Why? Russia invaded Ukraine. China. There are no signs preceding the rapture. Would you say it with me? There are no signs preceding the rapture. That's the truth. All the signs given are what we're going to see next week in the tribulation period, which precede the second coming of Christ's earth. Do you hear that? But let me back up. It's true that when my wife walked into, I think it was the Christmas tree shop last week, guess what she saw? Christmas decorations. Now, what did that tell her? Christmas is coming. But what's the hidden message to us? If Christmas is coming, then how much sooner is Thanksgiving? Right? So if you see the signs of Christmas, and we know before Christmas comes, Thanksgiving comes, and you see the signs of the second coming, those signs don't happen overnight. But I'm just saying be careful. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. Examine current events in light of biblical prophecy. It's not a tongue twister. It's truth. Be careful. So there are no signs uh, preceding this time. I can remember 40 years ago, I used to love to sing the song. I love the melody and I love the harmony. Signs of the times are everywhere. There's a brand new feeling in the air. Lift your eyes upon the eastern skies. Behold, your redemption draweth nigh. Beautiful melody. Lousy theology. Okay? (laughs) So beware of things like that because so many times they're just all used interchangeably. The rapture could happen before the end of the service this morning. His coming is imminent. It's instantaneous. Notice verse 15. 15 tells us when the Lord descends from heaven, it's with a cry of command. The voice of an archangel, Michael. There are other archangels. He's the only one we know about, though. And with the trump of God. What's it going to be like? Lazarus, come forth. Can you hear that cry that he makes? John looked up to heaven and the church was translating there or there, getting ready to be uh, in heaven. And John looks down and he says, 
And with the sound of a trumpet, there is a voice saying, come on up here. That's the call to the rapture. It's the call to be with the Lord. Paul says that the rapture will be a cry of a command, military command, by the way. His father, ear would just use voice of an archangel, and then the trump of God. So we're not using our eyes to look to the eastern skies. We're using our ear to listen for the sound of the trumpet. Although we want to be discerning of the times about us. The cry of command is a military term. And the trumpet is like reveille. Every military veteran, active personnel knows what reveille is. Fall in. Get up. Get in line. Perhaps you're aware that Winston Churchill planned his own funeral service. And following the prayer by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the singing of God Save the Queen, there was a trumpeteer perched in the highest reaches of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And he started playing the Lord's Post. In America, we call it taps. If you've ever been to a military burial, the soldier plays the bugle, one instrument. Dun, dun, dun. It's a very sorrowful, mournful sound. Tears at the heartstrings. Somebody is being laid to rest. They have died. And so he had that played. And then as that last sorrowful note was played, concerning taps, there was another trumpeteer perched high on the other gallery, and he came out blaring the trumpet revelly. You know it, don't you? And what's that mean? Fall in place. And it was Churchill's way of saying, the believer dies, but then reveille is coming. And that's when the Lord, come on up hither, and we are with the Lord forever. Then there's a change to incorruption, and I'll try to move along here quickly. This is where you turn over 1 Corinthians 15 if you have a Bible, but you'll see it on the screen. Verses 15, 53 and 54, here's where he says again, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Here's the mystery. It's not mysterious. It just wasn't previously con uh, revealed. It's now uh, revealed to us. We shall not all sleep. Not every believer is going to be dead at the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So whether you've died and gone and be with the Lord or whether you're awake with the Lord, if we're awake, we're not going to die, but all of us are going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet was sounded, the dead will be raised, imperishable, we shall be changed. There it is, that's the rapture. God is not going to reconstruct your body. Thank God for that, right? It's not a reconstruction. Your body is called by Paul over in 1 Corinthians 15. It's called what? A seed. Just imagine a little seed. And he says, I put the seed in the ground, and out comes a beautiful flower. Do you get the idea? So the seed, the body is the seed that goes into the ground that's buried. But then on that day of the rapture, it comes out as a beautiful flower. Because it's resurrected. And then he says, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put. Remember, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Your body as it is today cannot enter heaven. You need a body that is prepared for heaven. That's the resurrection. But what's glorious is that same body prepared for heaven in the new Jerusalem is also prepared to come back to earth. We're going to travel back and forth in the, just like that. I plan to play golf down here and then go back up to New Jerusalem for a while. But I have a body prepared for both. You don't have a body right now, neither do I. It's only prepared as an earth dweller. But someday you're going to receive a new body, and so, and so am I. And he said it's going to be changed instantly. 
love that word changed. Now, think about this morning. Take it back just a few hours. What's one of the first things you did? Same thing I did. You get up, you go to the restroom, you look in the mirror. You say, good Lord, help us all, right? Okay. Yeah, what do you do? You shave, right? You shower, you brush your teeth, you, you comb your hair. You, you, you women, you take another hour and a half, you know. You need a lot of time to primp and get everything, all that makeup and the skin, and all that stuff. You know, you're just pouring on yourself to look beautiful. And may I say, you do. You look gorgeous today. You look beautiful. You men look so handsome. Okay, enough of that. But what you knew when you looked into the mirror was what? You knew that you needed change. I used to have people ask 40 years ago when things were a little bit rigid and legalistic in uh, fundamental churches, and the young ladies would come to me and say, Pastor Flesher, is it okay for a Christian woman to wear makeup? I say, I'd say the same answer every time. If the barn needs painted, paint it. You know, it's as simple as that, okay? The barn needs painted, just go ahead, paint the baby. That's all. Okay, let's get away from that for just a minute. I'm getting into trouble here. I love the story of the old farmer. The old farmer, right? He never loved, he just didn't enjoy city life. He didn't he just liked his farm, the countryside. But one day he had business that he had to do in the local town. So he takes his son and they go into the local town and they go to the bank to do their business. And when he gets in the bank, he sees, he sees something that he's never seen before. And he sees a vault, the big door, you know. And he didn't know what it was, but it wasn't long right after he went in, an elderly lady came in and she had a walker. And she was gingerly making herself to the vault door and... Uh, she entered the vault. And then less than a minute later, the farmer's scratching his head, wondering what she's doing in there. And out walks the most beautiful 25-year-old blonde with an hourglass figure that you can imagine. And he looked at her and he said, son, go get your mama. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of what we... <laughs> A little bit of what we have in mind with the change. But there's going to be that instantaneous change, and we shall be with the Lord. John wrote it this way, 1 John 5, 1, 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. But beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear rapture, we, what? Shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What's that say? It means we're going to have the same kind of body that Jesus has. Powerful, eternal, fit for heaven glorified it's going to be like his body we'll walk through the wall won't bother us a bit of matter won't matter i can eat fish and honeycomb and i won't gain weight i mean it's all the, it's the beautiful glorified eternal body we shall be like him now notice we shall see him as he is i never thought of this in my life until this week and i heard somebody else that i like very much who said, maybe that's a clue as to how old we will look in heaven. Did you ever think about that? What are you going to look like in heaven? What if you die at the age of 98? You're going to be a 98-year-old woman in heaven? What if you lost your baby? Is that baby going to be a baby in heaven? I don't know. A lot of stuff I don't know. But then I thought about that, and the more I thought about it, we know that when he's revealed, we'll be like him, and we'll see him as he is. He was 33 years old. There might be something to that. Whatever it is, the best part is that at that time, no more cancer, no more heart attacks, no more being plugged into the machines in the CCU. No more wheelchairs. I think one of the most beautiful pictures that touches my heart is when I see a graphic, creative, right, uh, uh, painting of an artist with such creativity, and you see the rapture in the instant taking place, and the wheelchairs are falling all apart. 
Imagine what that second's like for that person, or that elderly person strapped in bed, the person suffering in pain. No more lowering of the casket. No more goodbyes. No more night. No darkness. No sin. I mean, how glorious is that day? And that's what we have to look forward to. Let me close out with the last few words on the reunion of the saints, verses 17 to 18. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word then in verse 17 is an adverb which connects the dots here denoting the sequence of which is threefold. We saw resurrected, not reconstructed bodies are reunited with the souls of those who died. So those souls are with the Lord. All of a sudden, in a split second, they have their eternal glorified God body. Number two, these resurrected believers instantly changed are reunited with the raptured living believers. The dead in Christ, then we who are alive are caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thirdly, resurrected believers and raptured believers meet the Lord in the air. Imagine. For 50 years, the Fletcher extended family has had family reunion. And uh, we've done it now or kind of every three years we do it, but close to 200 of us gather together and just enjoy each other for a week. I always hated, I dreaded the final night of reunion because you're hugging, you're kissing, you don't know when you're going to see them again, and you don't know, you don't know. Will they be here at the next reunion? Too many times they're not. And so Paul is telling us it's a glad reunion that someday we'll see those loved ones who have gone on before us. Death, the last enemy, has been defeated. Let your mind drift with me for just a moment. I want you to think about people whom you love dearly that you miss. A grandma, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a baby, a child, a grandchild, a friend. They died in the Lord, but you think of them. I think of some every day, every day. And I can't wait. I cannot wait to see them and to see him for the first time. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Did you notice with me at the beginning how the rapture is closely connected with the finished work of Christ? Because he says in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who are asleep and those who are raised caught up are those who have entered into the finished work of Christ. Have you? Do you know him? Do you really know him? Or will you be left behind? It's a glad reunion, but it's a glorious reunion because we meet the Lord in the air. Wearsby reminds us of the word meet in verse 17 carries the idea of meeting a royal person. Indeed, he is king of kings, lord of lords. Imagine that. Seeing Christ eyeball to eyeball. The one who died for us. My shepherd, my lord. Being in his presence. Some say she was born blind. We don't know. Others say no, she was blinded six weeks after birth. But regardless, a well-intentioned minister said to her, I think it's a great pity that the creator and master that you know and love, that when he showered so many gifts upon you, that he didn't give you sight. Fanny Crosby, the blind one, replied, 
Do you know if at birth I had been able to make one position, one petition to my creator, I would have been that I should be born blind. And the minister looked baffled, surprised. And he said, why? And she replied, because when I get to heaven, the first sight that I shall ever gladden my eyes will be that of the Savior. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. Many of them we love dearly. Hmm. Here's one. When my life work is ended, it's going to be soon, very soon. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, Fanny said, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And his smile will be the first to welcome me. Oh, the dear ones in glory. Remember the ones you just thought about? They're with the Lord. Oh, the dear ones in glory. Now think of this. How they beckon me to come. I wonder if that's true. With dad and mom and Herm and Ted and Martha and others are beckoning me to come, beckoning you to come. And our parting at the river, I recall, to the sweet vales of Eden, they will sing my welcome home, but I long to see my Savior first of all. I shall know him. I shall know him. When redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. Three closing thoughts and we're done. We should be looking for the Lord Jesus. In fact, uh, Paul says there's a promise. For all those who love his appearing, he's going to give you a crown of righteousness. Imagine Jesus putting a crown of righteousness on your head simply because you long for his coming and looked for it. We should be living for Jesus, everyone that hath this hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. We should be leaning on Jesus. Does your heart ache to miss the loved ones? Do you miss them? You have somebody that's on death's door? Just prayed with someone early this morning. Mom's on hospice care. Won't be long. They're going to go through that. He says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And they're comforting, aren't they? We miss him. But soon, very soon, we shall see the king be with him and loved ones forever. Lord in heaven, thank you for this blessed hope. Thank you for this confidence, this assurance, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Thank you for the wonderful way this congregation has engaged themselves in the word of God. I pray if there's anyone here not certain they belong to Christ, and are ready for that rapture, oh God, give them no rest or peace until they surrender to the Prince of Peace. And may those of us who know him love his appearing. May we live for him. And Lord, may we love that appearing and lean on him until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen.